You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Hi, hi. Hello. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. You? I'm good. I woke up like in a in a bad mood, but I'm feeling much better. I've had a really wild morning, some exciting meetings, uh, learning about some new topics, and I, I'm really looking forward to today's topic here on polyamory and toxic monogamy and compersion and a whole bunch of other hot topics. Should be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Before we dive in, I want to thank letsgetcheck.com for their ongoing support of our program. Check them out, letsgetcheck.com for all your at-home health testing needs and use code Dr. Jess to save. And I thought I'd mention something. My friends over at WeVibe, which is really my favorite sex toy brand, honestly. I've been working with them forever. I've been using them forever. And my favorite toy is called The Touch. I've had my touch forever. It sort of looks like a flat thick purple tongue. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I would say so. Or like a skinny computer mouse. Yes, both of those. Because when I've been pulled over <laughs> by TSA and they've asked what's in the bag, they're like, are those computer mice? Because I always have a oh, bunch really? of them. Yeah, I'm like, not exactly. I always but, just tell them it's sex toys and they let me go on my merry ways because they don't, they don't want to go into my suitcase. That's the one that I've used on the plane as a neck massager. It might have been. You've also I believe used, so. You've also used the Wish. The blue one. They all work. <laughs> they all work. Anyhow, WeVibe has come out with a new and improved Touch X as well as their new Tango. And I'm super excited because these are kind of our old stalwarts. These are the toys that I've had in my personal kit for so long. And now they've been upgraded. And yeah, I'm just really excited to try them. I'm not going to lie and say I've tried them yet because I'm still in Jamaica. And if you know anything about shipping to Jamaica, it's a whole other, it's a whole other can of worms. But if you want to check out their new toys at wevibe.com, you can also use code Dr. Jess to save. So happy shopping, but without further ado, let's dive into this topic of unfucking your polyamory. Joining us now are Liz Powell and Kevin Patterson. Kevin Patterson is the author of Love's Not Colorblind and the Four Higher series. And Dr. Liz Powell is a psychologist, speaker, and author of Building Open Relationships. Happy to have you both here today. We're so happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Kevin, we've chatted before and you've shared your personal story, the story that took you to writing Love's Not Colorblind uh, on a previous episode. But could you give us a shortened version for folks who missed that episode? Although I recommend they go back and have a listen um yeah 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 um i i've been um i've been ethically non-monogamous consensually non-monogamous for going on 19 years now um it was a a bit of a a learning curve going into um a local polyamory community that was mostly white despite being in a local area that wasn't uh entirely white and it led to me talking, talking led to me teaching, and teaching led to me uh, writing Love's Not Colorblind, uh, Race and Representation and Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. And being a geek led me into writing the For Hire series of uh, queer <laughs> polyamorous superhero novels. 
I love and it. Those I love are it. amazing. If you haven't read those books, they are so good. Thank you. Oh, and that's coming from another author, uh, Dr. Liz. You wrote Building Open Relationships. And I have this book. I've used this book. I recommend it. Uh, it is a, a workbook for it really, I mean, the way I see it is that it's for anybody in a relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about, about your book? Absolutely. Uh, you know, building open relationships for me came from me seeing so many books about non-monogamy that were really excellent books, but primarily about theory and how to think about non-monogamy. And what I saw over and over again, both in my own relationships and in my friends and in my clients and my practice, was that people wanted something that went beyond how do we think about it? How do we think about what non-monogamy is into more practical? Okay, so I'm in this conflict, like what happens now? Or what are the common issues that come up and how do I start to work on them? And so I wanted to create a resource for folks that is usable, that is practical, that they can really dig into and use again and again and again to handle the kinds of problems that come up for them in their lives. And you're absolutely right. It's marketed as being about non-monogamy, but the way that we relate in our romantic and sexual relationships is the way that we relate in our work relationships and our friendships and our family relationships. So the skills that the book can help you with are the same skills that work for all kinds of relationships that you have. I really appreciate that. I think oftentimes we talk about monogamy and consensual or ethically non-monogamy as separate, right? As these mutually exclusive experiences. But of course, there is a, a ton of overlap in terms of communication. There's a ton of overlap in terms of conflict. There's a ton of overlap in terms of emotional experience because human relationships are just that, you know, regardless of whether you're with one person or three people or eight people. And so you are now offering training as a duo in polyamory for professionals and, and for therapists. Can you, can you tell us why you decided to offer this training and why it's so important? Well, uh, like, like I said, I've been at it for 19 years. Uh, Dr. Liz has been at it for quite some time as well. Uh, we've been teaching classes together uh, on and off um, in different different settings. And last year, we made it a point to create a class that was for sort of civilians, for people who were trying to learn polyamory, people who were trying to get their, their feet under them and try to find their way. And it just became a talking point between the two of us that, you know, one of the problems that polyamorous people face is wanting to go to uh, therapists, coaches, uh, service providers who weren't uh, familiar with polyamory. And then next thing you know, you've got to actually educate your therapist while getting, you know, while getting help from your therapist. And so we decided we wanted to address that as well as we were addressing everything else. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a therapist myself and, the reason I initially got into private practice was I was stationed uh, in Savannah, Georgia when I was still in the army full time. And I was in a relationship and we were polyamorous and I was trying to find us a couples therapist. And for some reason, I couldn't in Savannah, Georgia, find a couples therapist who knew anything about polyamory. I know that's going to be shocking to folks, but, you know, I called a bunch of therapists and the closest thing I got to someone who actually knew about non-monogamy was someone who said, polyamory? Uh, yeah, sure. I can work with that. 
which was not the most reassuring thing to hear. <laughs> um, that makes you feel once good. Once I opened that private practice, a lot of the clients that I worked with came to me and said that their previous therapists had made whatever they'd come to them about, whether it was depression or sleep issues, about their non-monogamy or about their kink. And that was really hard for them. It was harmful to them to be told that the reason they're depressed is because they're non-monogamous. When for a lot of these folks, the non-monogamy was one of their best tools for handling their symptoms with depression. And so I wanted to create a space where people could come in and be seen and affirmed exactly as they are. Yeah, um, there's non-monogamy communities, polyamory communities, they're filled with so many horror stories of not just people who are ignorant, not just people who are uh, who are undereducated about kink or non-monogamy or what have you, but people who were well-meaning and thought they had it thought they had it in hand and just thought that uh, like something I talk about in Love's Not Colorblind is that when you're trying to create inclusive environments, you can't just hang up a welcome sign. You can't just say everybody's welcome and expect the magic to happen on its own. You have to actively seek that inclusivity. You have to work towards it. You have to foster it. And the same is true when it comes to uh, looking for non-monogamous service providers or uh, non-monogamy friendly service providers. It can't just be like, well, I'm not going to turn you away at the door, so I guess I can do this. You have to know what mm -hmm. you're talking about. You have to be able to address uh, the topic in a way that's not harmful, in a way that's not problematic. And you have to undo all the social conditioning, right? In a world that yes. normalizes monogamy and puts it at the top of the hierarchy, I think all of us, even folks who are ethically non-monogamous, have to undo actively. It's, it's a process. It's never totally done. And so, you know, it makes me think that every therapist ought to receive training in polyamory and I think actively work to challenge toxic monogamy and that and that's you know god's work the work you're doing <laughs> so I'd, lo I'd love to for you to kind of explain what toxic monogamy is and what it isn't because i know it's a trigger word for a lot of people you know if you're if you're monogamous and you hear me say that you might be thinking like that i'm that i'm judging you or that i'm saying monogamy is bad but when we talk about toxic monogamy that's not what we mean so can, can you kind of explore that concept a little I'm bit for jump us, in please? Here right before liz because i know liz has an intelligent answer but i'm gonna give a goofy one <laughs> um, <laughs> i love you kev i love you too there is um like toxic monogamy is that there's a t-shirt that gets advertised to me on my facebook all the time that says something like stay away from me don't talk to me i've got a boyfriend my boyfriend is crazy he'll cut you and scares me a little bit but he really loves me and it's okay that is toxic Ooh. monogamy toxic monogamy is that's super real <laughs> they make a ring that's printed married on the inside of that ring so that if someone takes off their wedding ring, it's printed, pushed into their finger, married, so that they can't, you know, take off the ring and cheat. Like all of these Lord. things, all of these things that we normalize, all of these things that like all of these wild bananas things that we normalize in order to um, keep our keep our partners or ensure trust, you know, key loggers on on your unsuspecting uh, spouse's computer or what have you. That's toxic monogamy. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I would say is that toxic monogamy is the combination of the various ways that our society enables and promotes oppression put into our relationships. So the same ways that patriarchy and white supremacy and ableism and cis sexism and classism are about control and about moving power and autonomy from some people to other people. Toxic monogamy does a very similar thing within a romantic relationship context. So 
within romantic relationships in mononormative culture, what we're taught is that if you're really in love with someone and the relationship is important, they should be able to tell you what to do. They should be able to say that you can't be friends with someone or you can't talk to someone or you can't stay friends with your ex because they're the most important thing in your life now. Toxic monogamy is this structure that says that the person that you happen to be dating or having sex with will suddenly take more precedence in your life than people you've been friends with for decades because relationships that are sexual are more important for some reason. And toxic monogamy is also this idea that when you are in this relationship with someone, it has to move in a certain direction. It has to go a certain way and follow this relationship escalator. And if at any point you want to stop or go backwards, that means that the relationship is wrong and dead. You have to never speak to that person again and start over at the bottom with someone new. So it's all of these ways in which we find coercion and control showing up in our relationships, that we find ourselves forced into following scripts that are not ours and that may not even fit for us, and that take away power that should be ours and give it to somebody else. You know, toxic monogamy is me forcing or buying or asking my partner to wear a t-shirt with my face on it to ward off any other potential suitors. This is so much like when you describe that that first T-shirt from Facebook uh, and the ring, I get goosebumps over my body. Uh, And it is really a reminder that you can be monogamous and not be toxic about it. So now you've told us what and you're such a great combo. Like I can't wait to get into into your course and talk about that (laughs) and, and hopefully people will will sign up. But what what's the difference between toxic monogamy and just plain old monogamy <laughs> i feel like monogamy just like monogamy at its center is just understanding and having the conversation and understanding that the commitment that you'd like to make is exclusive and and that's it without having to force it without having to um without denying the difficulty therein without having you know without trying to make it into a fairy tale or a compulsory thing that everybody needs to be a part of just making the decision between you and one other person and saying you know what let's just do this together alone the two of us and that's it yeah i mean i think what i would say is you know some people they like to have one best friend And it's not that they don't like other people or have other friends. It's that like the way that they operate is they have one best friend and that's their closest friend. Some people like me often have multiple best friends. They have a best friend for this setting and a best friend for that setting. I think that healthy monogamy is that same kind of model. It's not a I'm policing how many best friends you get to have. You don't get to have any other best friends. Don't get too close to anybody else. It's a I just tend to have one best friend. You also tend to have one best friend. Let's be each other's best friends. Yeah, like every yeah, once I in a really, while, I'll see some somebody will point to some work from Dr. Liz, and I'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, Dr. Liz, Dr. Liz is one of my favorite people. And then, like, someone else will show me a post from uh, from Dirty Lola, and I'll be like, Dirty Lola? Yeah, Dirty Lola's one of my favorite people. You know, Alicia Bunyan Sampson, one of my favorite people. Chris Smith, one of my favorite people. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I love these people. <laughs> it is absolutely fine. I'm seeing so much culture in that and I don't know which part of my culture, but it's like, oh, that's my favorite. That's the best. Everything's my favorite. Everything's the best. And I I love the comparison to friendship because when you get into a situation in an intimate or romantic or sexual relationship, 
and you find that, you know, your partner's being a bit possessive or you worry that maybe you're just naturally being a little bit possessive because of your own fears, because of your own vulnerabilities, because of ingrained toxic monogamy. I wonder, you know, if you were to ask the same question about a friend, would you be so rigid in your answers? But you, you know, you're correct that we, we see sexual relationships as somehow different from every other relationship. And again, this isn't to say that you can't have a very happy, fulfilling, mon- lasting monogamous relationship. But I think the concern too with toxic, mon- toxic monogamy is that the idea of monogamous being monogamous is supposed to make the relationship work when in yeah. fact it's just but one component of the relationship. So, you know, you talked in the beginning, Dr. Liz, about not being able to find a therapist in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, and this also brings me to the damage that therapists can do if they haven't worked out their own biases with regard to monogamy. So I'd love to hear from either of you about the damage done in therapy when we assume that, yeah, when we assume that monogamy is the only way. Um, I've got one more toxic monogamy one that just popped into my head. Uh, Don't worry. I hope it's a (laughs) t-shirt. Toxic monogamy is our former vice president not eating dinner alone with, uh, with women because he's a married man. And, and oh feeling God. like the only way to honor his marriage is to steer clear, possibly even denying opportunities and advancement to women for that reason. But moving on, um, <laughs> very, very early in my very early in my uh, in my non-monogamous journey, my wife and I, uh, who who I've been um, been with for like the entirety of my non-monogamy, we, we hit a rough patch and we started seeing uh, a couple's therapist. And one of the first things he said was, okay, well, if you're non-monogamous, maybe you can just not do that. You know, something to that effect. He said something like, can't you just break up with any other people that you're seeing and focus on each other and work on that relationship? And at the time, you know, this is a great many years ago, we, we didn't have people in our lives that were that important to us romantically or sexually where that seemed like a, like a, like an, like an unreasonable ask, you know, we didn't end up doing that, but it didn't seem like unreasonable at the time. Meanwhile, like if you asked me that today, if you said, well, hey, you know, can't you just treat your other people as disposable, as integral and important as the people in my life are right this moment? Like, I, you know, I'd leave. I'd get up and walk away because that's just sort of what people feel like where because we live in such a mononormative culture. Anything that isn't my anything that isn't monogamous is immediately seen as the problem. You know. Meanwhile, the problems that my wife has is that I don't close I don't close cupboards enough when I take stuff out of those cupboards. You know, that's an <laughs> argument that we're gonna have that has nothing to do with her, uh, our polyamory or you know her inability to pick me up something to eat when she goes out to get something to eat. That's gonna be the argument that she and I have, which has nothing to do with non-monogamy. Yeah, absolutely. And- You know, I think I've seen a lot of therapists who are well-meaning who are basically operating outside of their competency. And this is true for all different kinds of professions. You know, I'm going to give an example uh, that is not necessarily a therapist, but I'm on Truvada, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. Not that I'm having a ton of sex these days in pandemic times, but uh, before that, I was very slutty. It was a thing I could do to protect myself and my partners. And I get my uh, Truvada through the infectious disease clinic at the local VA here. 
And infectious disease is people who specialize and work with stuff like HIV. So they tend to be much more educated about things related to STIs uh, and those kinds of issues. I went to see this doctor and they were doing their standard assessment at the start of each of these appointments where I'm getting my STI testing. And this doctor asked me, do you have sex with men, women, or both? I myself am genderqueer, so I'm not quite either of those. And so I said, I have sex with people of all genders. And then the doctor asked me, well, who have you had sex with since your last appointment? Was it a man or a woman? And I said, uh, it was a person with a penis, because that's really the relevant piece of information. Uh, this happens all the time across a bunch of different professions, where folks are asking questions that they were taught to ask, but that aren't actually getting what needs to happen. And in a therapy context, other ways that this can show up can be therapists reinforcing these kind of toxic monogamy ideas about what is or isn't okay to expect of a partner or demand of a partner because they themselves have not unpacked their own internalized scripts from toxic monogamy. Any therapist who says, of course it's okay to treat other people as disposable. Of course this main partner gets to tell you who to have sex with. That is something that needs to be unpacked because it is reinforcing these same ideas of coercion and control, that each person's body is not their own, and that rather than helping the clients explore, like, what is that request coming from? What is that about? What is it you're trying to get from this? They're just going directly to a solution that was proposed. And that's not helpful. When you bring that up, it makes me think about triads and couples who are looking for a third. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with so many couples whose focus is on prioritizing their relationship over the third person. You may maybe discounting their feelings or making them secondary or tertiary or not even registering. So is that something you see often in, in maybe hierarchical polyamory or even among therapists who, as you said, are well-intended, but maybe haven't done the, the thorough studying that they could do through your course, which we'll get to in just a moment? Now, some, I, something I say uh, a lot, I, there's no, as long as everybody's checked in, as long as everybody's consensual, there's no like inherently unethical uh, polyamorous structure, but there are unethical ways of seeking them. And a, current, uh, a, a common problem with triads, like closed triads, is that they come from these pre-established couples and who essentially ask a third person to fall in love with them equally and simultaneously in a way that you know human nature doesn't always allow for and so you get this power imbalance and something that we wanted to address in our workshop is like is that power imbalance like the very first course of uh of our pro uh of our pro of our pro course, uh, the very first session of our pro course deals with power imbalances in that same way. And because we get so much representation of closed triads, including some upcoming um, HBO Max show that's um, that they're working on, a lot of times people think that like polyamory is only triads or can only be triads or is mostly represented by triads when that just isn't the case. Uh, a, a, a close friend of mine had a situation where she, her and her husband were going through some going through some rough times. She went to go see a therapist who said, oh, yeah, I'm knowledgeable about polyamory. I can help you. And the first question was, will your third be joining us? This is <laughs> yeah, and this was not a couple. This was not a triad. This was not, a, you know, people who were in a triad or who had a third. But just like 
the presumption of that and the confidence with which it was said as if hmm. they had it so they had the terminology down and everything but they were completely wrong and that's stuff that's the kind of stuff we want to make sure that we're addressing like really clearly um both with Dr. Liz's academic background and my uh, sort of from from the hip anecdotal uh, uh, background, you know, I've I've got the book smarts and Kev has the street smarts. Uh, that's that's <laughs> totally wrong, by the way. Kev also has tons of book smarts. I mean, between the two of he's us, he's written a whole bunch of award winning author. So <laughs> I, you know, I just want to put that out there. There's a lot of overlap in our, in our smarts, and I'm here for all of it. You know, Kevin, I'm glad you brought up the fact, and I, I think maybe I maybe implied something different, that, you know, there is no structure that is inherently bad. It's just that sometimes structures open us up to these power imbalances. And you know what? We can't rid ourselves of power imbalances either entirely. We have to, like, work through them, talk through them, uh, be be aware of our power and privilege. And change the way we act according to it. So in your course, can you tell us, first of all, what's the course called? Where can people find it? What does it entail? I know that you have a a weekend intensive launching very soon. Can you give us the details, please? Yes. So uh, right now what we're launching is Unfuck Your Polyamory Pro, which is a training for therapists, coaches, uh, medical professionals, anyone who works with non-monogamous clients and wants to be sure that they are being on top of how to do that in the most ethical and affirming way possible. It is going to eventually be a full certification program for folks who want to make sure that they are on top of all of the different dynamics involved in non-monogamy. So the first weekend intensive that we're doing is February 20th and 21st, and it's about autonomy and power dynamics. So we're going to be looking at various factors involved with like what increases someone's power, what creates different power dynamics, how can we be mindful of them, how can we be mindful of the power dynamics in the relationships the clients are in, as well as the power dynamics between us and our clients, so that we're handling those with care and being mindful of them. We're also going to be doing weekend intensives in the future on polyamory 101 stuff, including terminology, structures, what looks like an ethical structure, what looks like a less ethical structure, uh, interpersonal dynamics, including things like couple privilege, uh, and then boundaries, agreements, rules, communication. So it's going to be a a full set of courses designed to help folks who work with non-monogamous people really understand what non-monogamy is about and unpack their own ideas about what relationships are. You know, as I think we've talked about a couple times during this podcast, the issue is not whether a therapist is monogamous or non-monogamous themselves. The issue is much more, have they done the work to understand how monogamy culture has impacted them, has impacted what they think is reasonable in a relationship, has impacted what they think clients should be doing and how they interact with their clients around their own relationships. And so most of this course is really focused on helping these professionals look at themselves and unpack their own biases, unpack their own assumptions so that they can meet their clients in a much more open and curious and helpful way. And I see that you're offering continuing education credits. People can learn more at unfuckyourpolyamory.com. Now you offer a professional course. You also have a course for regular folks who just want to learn more about polyamory. Is, is that an online course? Is it a live course? How does that one work? That's all, uh, that's an online course. Uh, it 
It extends from uh, something Dr. Liz and I taught together uh, last year, but it's uh, a six-week webinar. Um, I don't remember all of the all of the names of all of the classes off the top of my head, but it's like a polyamory 101, a power dynamics course, a boundaries course, a, cl- a course about metamors. Uh, so, but it's six uh, six different sessions. It's available at the same place, unfuckyourpolyamory.com. and like Dr. Liz and I are really proud of it. Yeah. I love that. And can can I ask you for some definitions quickly? Sure. Can I do one quick thing? So Yeah, of course, please. Go ahead. The great thing about our Unfuck Your Polyamory course that's for regular folks who want to learn more about non-monogamy is that, you know, we recognize how difficult it can be to afford these kinds of classes for a lot of people. And so that course is a pay what you can course for everybody. So it's got a suggested price that reflects what we think is a reasonable price for that course. But if for whatever reason you can't pay that price, whatever price feels good for you, you are down to pay. Absolutely. And also, uh, we also wanted to recognize when it comes to the pro course that there is a lot of gatekeeping by way of resources of uh, marginalized folks. So we have a pay what you can uh, option for the pro course as well. It's a limited number of slots, but it's pay what you can for uh, for uh, black, indigenous people of color and disabled folks. Thank you. Yes, I saw that on the website and was going to shout that out. So we will put the access to these courses, if people are interested, they will all be in the show notes. We'll also put them out on our social media. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask a couple of questions because you said the word metamor and folks might be wondering what that means. Can you uh, briefly tell us what a metamor is in the context of polyamorous relationships? Uh, Very simply, uh, my uh, metamor is my partner's partner who I am not also in a relationship with. So my wife has a couple of, uh, my wife has uh, people that that she dates. Those would be my metamors. The people that I date that she is not involved with, those would be her metamors. Thank you. And I know in your course, you talk a lot about this. I I wish we had time actually to talk about what to do when one partner identifies as polyamorous and the other partner identifies as monogamous. But I was reading something the other day as a reminder that monogamy is what I am. And if polyamorous is what Brandon is, I'm actually not really putting anything on him. If I want to be, I can be monogamous with him and he can be polyamorous and not monogamous with me. But this notion of having an identity, like for example, no, I can't do that baby because I'm monogamous. Cool. You can still be monogamous. He's not taking anything away from me. But what I'm really saying when I say, no, 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 I'm monogamous is yeah, I'm monogamous and I want to put that on you too. Is that something you explore in the work that you do or in this course itself? I think we've both talked about that some uh, in different courses. And I think the biggest thing I see in monopoly relationships is the monogamous person having an expectation that at some point the polyamorous person will want to settle down and get over this polyamory stuff. Mm. And once they really, really Mm. love them, it'll change their mind. And I think if you're a monogamous person who's dating a polyamorous person and you're not ever going to be happy with them continuing to be polyamorous – you're only going to harm yourself and your partner in the long run. If you are totally fine being monogamous with someone who is not monogamous with you, great. Like, go for that. Have fun. But if your expectation is that at some point they will change their mind or be different, you know, that's that's lurking the relationship. That's the same as guys who complain about having been friend-zoned and they're being so nice to this woman who won't eventually give them sex. It's, it's the same idea of I'm trying to trick you into a dynamic that I want and not being clear about my boundaries and what I expect and hoping that you'll just come around without me ever having to call that question. 
And to be clear, right. that's a common enough problem that I've he- I hear about it pretty frequently. And literal years of people's lives are, are, are lost waiting for that polyamorous person to not be polyamorous anymore. And that's just not how that's just not how humanity works. You know, it's not going to it's not going to fall into a little box in the way that we expect it to. I think there are some folks who are like characterologically monogamous and some folks who are characterologically polyamorous. And there are some folks who could kind of go either way. And so I think if you are one of those people who is like steadfastly monogamous and you're dating someone who's polyamorous, it's worth asking them, like, would you ever be monogamous? Is that something you would want to do? And if not, you need to determine whether that's going to work for you. Right. I really appreciate that. You know, there's another piece that came out of your your course here that I'm looking at online, another piece of language I'd just love to also get a definition of. uh, And I think we can bridge that to a a closing conversation around what monogamous people can learn from ethical non-monogamy. And that's compersion, this experience of compersion. Would you define that for us, please? Um, uh, I hear people uh, call compersion sort of the opposite of jealousy. I think the better definition is just it's feeling, getting a good feeling from seeing someone else getting a good feeling, um, experiencing joy in the joy of others. And we all do this. Like if you've ever been really psyched because your friend got a promotion or really happy because your partner uh, had fun at a party, that's compersion. I think a lot of people, especially when compersion was first defined, tried to very much limit it to this happiness that your partner is dating somebody else. And I don't think that's what compersion is. Feelings are very rarely context bound. So Mm -hmm. I think compersion is, again, this ability of us to experience kind of secondhand experience. Uh, pleasure, secondhand joy, secondhand excitement. Um, Humans are wired to do this. We have a lot of neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, which essentially help us feel what someone else is feeling. And so compersion is the outcropping of that. It is seeing someone else's joy and feeling a piece of that within ourselves. Yeah, and I love both of, those a definitions. Lot of what goes on in polyamory is a very normal thing in monogamy. It's just normal in different places, normal in different ways. Like if you've got a group of friends that you love for different reasons, despite the fact that they're different, you already understand polyamory. It, like, like Dr. Liz said, if you if you experience joy because someone got a new job or someone had a, got a new opportunity, you already understand compersion. It's only when we toss it into this. Uh, machine of jealousy and territoriality do do these things get muddy but really these are things that we normalize in every other aspect of our lives i feel like i i hear the term schadenfreude i don't know if i pronounce that properly thrown around so so frequently it's the opposite of what you're describing which is the Mm -hmm. pleasure that you take from somebody else's misfortune. So it's so nice to hear this, you know, taking joy in joy, taking joy in somebody else's joy. Yeah. And and I don't think of compersion as an opposite to jealousy because you can have them both at the same time. I've had a lot of times in my life yes. where I was really happy for someone else's joy and also kind of jealous or envious about it. So I think if we think of them as complementary, it's much easier it's much easier for folks to build that skill of compersion and to really find that in themselves. I appreciate that. And from an erotic perspective, I, I find jealousy very exciting, right? It can be, and so I take a lot of pleasure in it. So I appreciate that it's not necessarily the polarity 
of the two. Uh, I, I could. I have so many questions for you both, and I'd love to have you back again. Uh, I'm excited for your course coming up again. It's February 20th and 21st, the weekend intensive. You can learn more at unfuckyourpolyamory.com. For everybody out there, folks who are not polyamorous, folks who are not therapists, what can we take away from ethical non-monogamy? What lessons are really applicable um, to all forms of relationships? Intentionality. Intentionality. And th- th- I, I mm. can't stress that enough. Like something you have to do when you're when you're in a polyamorous relationship, you have to like map things out. You have to be on point with your calendar. You have to be on point with your emotional literacy. You have to be really intentional with the things that you do because th- these relationships thrive on that. Whereas in monogamy, we get so much modeling from Disney movies and parents and pop culture that a lot of times people can fall into a default setting. They can Fall, fall into an autopilot with their relationships when really that intentionality is what keeps things fresh and what keeps things new and keeps things active. I'd also add that I think what a lot of folks who are monogamous can learn from non-monogamy is real clarity in communicating their desires and their wants and their needs and their boundaries. In monogamy, because we're handed a script, it's really easy for us to operate on assumptions that our partner thinks about things the same way that we do or sees things the same way that we do. When they do research about what it means to cheat in monogamous relationships, answers are all across the board. And yet very Mm -hmm. few folks who are monogamous sit down with their partner and talk about, okay, well, what do you consider to be cheating? What things are cheating in your book, what things are cheating in my book. And so they're operating from this assumption that they've agreed to be monogamous and they both know what it means, when in fact, they may have completely different ideas about what that means. I think when you're non-monogamous, you're forced to have a lot more conversations about expectations around time, around interaction, around labels, around what gets communicated and what doesn't, around what your boundaries are. And that's something everybody could benefit from doing more of. Yeah, because in one relationship, you know, cheating might be, you know, giving away information that you didn't have, you know, that you don't have consent to give away. And in someone Mm -hmm. else's relationship, it might be liking somebody else's Instagram post. You got to have that conversation one way or the other. Right. And when you bring up liking someone else's Instagram post, I think we also have to have other conversations about why we have these boundaries, right? What do we really feel? Is it actually about monogamy or is it about, you know, an insecurity or an unaddressed conversation? Because that, that takes us into some very, I think, you know, potentially controlling and dangerous territory. I'm sure both of you saw the supposed research on micro cheating, right? All the little things that can constitute cheating. So ridiculous. I know. I know. And you know, um, but, but I don't want to discount people's feelings, right? Like they actually do feel something. And so rather than labeling it micro cheating, let's have some meaningful conversations, which is exactly what you're both facilitating. And we're so thankful for that and thankful for your time today. Kevin Patterson, author of Love's Not Colorblind and the Four Higher series, and Dr. Liz Powell, psychologist and author of Building Open Relationships. Do be sure to check out their course, Unfuck Your Polyamory, both for regular folks and folks working in the field. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. You know, over the years, my views of monogamy and consensual non-monogamy have, have changed so much and I've, I've had to do so much unlearning and I continue to have to check my own biases even if I go back into my writing a few years back I'm sure there's a lot of 
mono bias or even, I, I don't know, toxic monogamy in there. And I've had to kind of really unpack that. I, I don't know how you feel. Oh my gosh. If you feel like you have a lot of, of learning that you've done, I've got encyclopedias worth of work that I have to do. And, um, you know, a lot that I have done over the years, but it's definitely, my perspective has def- definitely changed. And even when I think back about how I have felt about monogamy and polyamory, I I feel like I'm much more receptive to different types of relationships now than I ever have been. And the more people that we meet and that we interview, the more interesting, you know, all these different types of of relationships become. Should I bring up that time when we first met? Do you remember on the beach when I asked you about monogamy? I don't even remember. You don't? We were up in Wasega Beach. And what did I say? I, am I, I, am I asked I, you about whether, you know, you'd be open to monogamy or non-monogamy. I was asking more generally. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, you don't remember being pretty <laughs> upset. Was I upset? I believe, <laughs> you know what, thinking back 20 years ago, I definitely would have been, uh, the doors would have been closed to it. I don't think that, I grew up with the belief that you had, you found a partner and that was your partner and that was it. And over the years, I've met so many people in wonderful relationships who are poly, who are monogamous. And I just feel like I'm more receptive to different types of relationships now. Yeah, it's interesting that Dr. Liz said that, you know, maybe some people are hardline monogamous. Some people are hardline polyamorous. And then there's people who can go either way. And I definitely think I'm somewhere in the middle there. But I guess that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, definitely. And what you said to me during one of our walks recently, which was, you know, I choose to be monogamous, but uh, the, the expectation that you automatically by default assume that your partner chooses the same when it's like, no, you make the decision for what works for you. And, and it may be seen as less of a decision and more a core part of your identity, mm-hmm. right? So if a core part of my identity is that I am monogamous, and a core part of your identity is that you are polyamorous, that doesn't mean we can't be together because what I am is for myself. And so, again, if I'm going to put that value or expectation on you, I have to acknowledge that it's about what I want from you as opposed to maybe what I am. But I I think that's an an interesting exploration. And I hope that, listen, I, I never want people to walk away feeling badly or feeling inadequate or feeling like they're doing something wrong. I hope that, you know, we're all doing the best we can with what we've got and we can make changes today. And I I really believe you can have the most blissfully happy monogamous relationships. I mean, I know you can, and I believe you can have blissfully happy, consensually non-monogamous relationships. I don't think whether or not you are monogamous is a key determinant in terms of relationship satisfaction. I think it's a part of the relationship. And we spend a lot of time talking about it just because our culture is so prescriptive and that prescription doesn't work for everyone. So I want to say thank you for your consideration and thank you for listening. Uh, please do go and check out Kevin and Dr. Liz's work. I think it's it's really, really meaningful. So thanks, babe, for talking with me. And this is really just the beginning. We have to keep this conversation going. That's what I love about these podcasts and these conversations is every time we 
I feel lucky enough to interview somebody new, I feel like it just opens up something else for me to look into and to feel better about. Yeah. And then you and I keep the conversation going offline. Like we always kind of talk after. Sometimes I think we should record those and, you know, put them on a Patreon or something. But I, I don't, I mean, the truth is, it's not that I don't want to let people in, but sometimes I just want some stuff just for us <laughs> Agreed. where I don't have to, you know, be filtered and, and I don't feel particularly filtered here, but I'm still mindful and yeah, sometimes I just want to go off the rails <laughs> with no one listening. <laughs> and that's just what me. I'm going to do just right me. now. So thanks again for being here, folks. Have a great one wherever you're at. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.